Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 30, verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Burkett notes, The country of the Jews was divided into three provinces, namely Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. In Galilee were the cities of Nazareth, Chorazin, Bethesda, and Capernaum. Here Christ dwelt and spent a considerable part of his time preaching to them and working miracles among them. But now comes the time in which our Holy Lord takes his leave of this province of Galilee and return no more to it. Woe to that people whose unthankfulness for Christ's presence and ministry among them causes him finally to forsake them. Having left Galilee, our Holy Lord passes through Samara, the Samaritans being prejudiced against him and refusing to receive him, and comes into the coasts of Judea, where multitudes of people flocked after him. But observe the quality of his followers, not the great ones of the world, not many mighty, not many noble, but the poor and despised multitude, the sick and weak, the deaf and blind, the diseased and distressed. Thence observe that none but such as find their need of Christ will seek after him and come unto him. None apply to him for help till they feel themselves helpless. Great multitudes of the sick and diseased came unto him, and he healed them all. Verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Burkett notes. Observe here, 1 that wheresoever our blessed Savior went, the Pharisees followed him, not out of a sincere intention, but with a design to ensnare him. And accordingly, they propound a question to him concerning divorce, whether a man might put away his wife on any occasion, as the manner of the Jews was, concluding that they should entrap him in his answer, whatever it was. If he denied the lawfulness of divorce, then they would charge him with contradicting Moses, who allowed it, If he affirmed it, then they would condemn him for contradicting his own doctrine. Chapter 5, verse 32. For favoring men's lusts, and for complying with the wicked custom of the Jews, who upon every slight and frivolous occasion put away their wives from them. Learn thence, 1. That wheresoever our Lord went, as he had disciples and sincere followers, so the devil stirred him up bitter and malicious enemies, who sought to render his person unacceptable and his doctrine unsuccessful. Two, that of all Christ's enemies, none had such a bitter hatred and enmity against his person, ministry, and miracles as the Pharisees. Men of great knowledge, who rebelled against the light of their own consciences and the clear conviction of their own mind. Three, that such was the wisdom of our Savior in all his answers to his enemies, that neither their wit nor malice could lay hold upon anything to ensnare him. But observe the piety and prudence of his answer to the Pharisees in the next words. Verses 4 through 6. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh." What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Burkett notes, Observe here, Christ gives no direct answer to the Pharisees' ensnaring question, but refers them to the first institution of marriage, when God made them one, 
to the intent that matrimonial love might be both incommunicable and indissolvable. Where learn one, the sacred institution of marriage, it is an ordinance of God's own appointment as the ground and foundation of all sacred and civil society, what God has joined together. Learn too, the antiquity of this institution. It was from the beginning. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Marriage is almost as old as the world, as old as nature. There was no sooner one person, but God divided him into two, and no sooner were there two, but he united them into one. Learn hence, three, the intimacy and nearness of this endeared and enduring relation. The conjugal knot is tied so close that the bonds of matrimonial love are stronger than those of nature. Stricter is the tie betwixt husband and wife than that between parent and child, according to God's own institution. For this cause shall man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. Verses 7-9 through They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Burkett notes. Observe here the Pharisees' demand of our Savior's reply. They demand why Moses commanded to put away the wife by a bill of divorce. Where note, the wicked abuse which the Pharisees put upon Moses, as if he had commanded them, whereas he had only permitted to put them away. Moses suffered it for the hardness of their hearts. That is, he did not punish it, not allowing it as good, but winking at it as a lesser evil, because the Jews were so barbarously cruel to their wives as to turn them away upon every disgust. Now our Savior in his reply refers them again to the primitive institution of marriage, bidding them compare the precepts and their practice together. For in the beginning it was not so. Learn that according to the word and will of God, nothing can violate the bonds of marriage and justify a divorce between man and wife, but the defiling of the marriage bed by adultery and uncleanness. This is the only case in which man and wife may lawfully part. Whosoever shall put away his wife except for fornication committeth adultery. Verse 10. His disciples say unto him, If the case of a man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Burkett notes. That is, if a man be so strictly tied by marriage, it's best for him not to marry. A very rash saying of the disciples, discovering both their great carnality and also the tyranny of a sinful practice grown up into custom. Learn one, that the best of men have their weakness and infirmities, and the flesh takes its turn to speak as well as the spirit in them. All that the saints say is not gospel. Learn, too, how impatient nature is of restraint, and how desirable of sinful liberty, and to be freed from the ties and bonds which the holy and wise laws of God put upon it. Verses 11 and 12. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which are so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Burkett notes, As if our Lord had said, You, my disciples, do not consider what you say. All men without sinning against God cannot abstain from marriage, but those only to whom God has given the gift of continency and grace of chastity 
Some, indeed, by nature or natural impotency are unfit for marriage. Others, wickedly, are made unfit by castration. Others, by religious mortification, bring under their bodies that being free from the encumbrances that attend to a married state, they may give up themselves the better to the exercise of a holy life. Learn, one, that Almighty God has given to diverse persons different tempers and constitutions. Some can subdue their impure desires and affections without the remedy of marriage. Others cannot. Two, the constancy or an ability to live chastely without the use of marriage is a special gift of God, not common to all, but bestowed only upon some. A gift it is, worthy of our fervent prayer, worthy of our best endeavors. Three, that a vow of chastity is not in our power. To quench a natural affection requires a supernatural gift. All have not received. That is, all men cannot live single and abstain from matrimony. From whence it follows that men and women are not by monastical vows to be obliged to live a single life, which some cannot perform without sin. Note farther, when Christ says that some have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, the meaning is that some have abstained from matrimony that they might be more expedite in preaching the gospel, if ministers, or more prompt, fit, and ready to regard only the things of the Lord, if private Christians. Verses 13 through 15. Then were there brought unto him the little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer the little children, and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands upon them, and departed thence. Burkett notes, Observe here, a solemn action performed. Children are brought to Christ to be blessed by him. Where note, one, the persons brought. Children, young children, suckling children, as the word imports. St. Luke 18.15 they brought them in their arms, not led them by the hand. Two, the persons they are brought unto, Jesus Christ. But for what end? Not to baptize them, but to bless them. The parents, looking upon Christ as a prophet, a great prophet, the great prophet, do bring their infants to him, that they may receive the benefit of his blessing and prayers. Whence learn, one, that infants are subjects capable of benefit by Jesus Christ. Two, that is the best office that parents can perform unto their children to bring them unto Christ, that they may be made partakers of that benefit. Three, if infants be capable of benefit by Christ, if capable of his blessing on earth and presence in heaven, if they be subjects of his kingdom of grace and heirs of his kingdom of glory, then they may be baptized. For they that are in covenant have a right to the seal of the covenant. If Christ denies not infants the kingdom of heaven, which is the greater, What reason have his ministers to deny them baptism, which is the less? But some say, Christ did neither baptize them nor command his disciples to do so. Answer, that is not to be wondered at, if we consider that they are already entered into covenant with God by circumcision and Christian baptism was not yet instituted. John's baptism was the baptism of repentance, of which infants were incapable. Verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Burkett notes, Observe here, a person addressing himself to Christ and propounding an important question to him, namely, what should he do to gain eternal life? Where note one, 
he believes the certainty of a future state. 2. He professes his desire of an eternal happiness in that state. And 3. He declares his readiness to do some good things that he may obtain that happiness. Learn that the light of nature or natural religion directs and teaches men that good works are necessary to salvation or that some good things must be done by men that at death expect eternal life. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? It is not talking well and professing well, but doing well and living well that entitles us to eternal life. Verse 17. And he said unto him, I callest thou me good. There is none good but one, that is God. But if that will enter into life, keep the commandments. Burkett notes. The person thus addressing himself unto Christ was either a Pharisee or a disciple of the Pharisees who did not own Christ to be God or to come from God, but thought that eternal life was attainable by fulfilling of the law in that imperfect sense which the Pharisees gave of it. And accordingly, one, Christ reproves him for calling him good. Why callest thou me good, when thou wilt neither own me to be God nor to come from God? For there is none good, that is, essentially and originally good, but God only, nor any derivatively good, but he that receives his goodness from God also. The Socinians argue against the divinity of Christ. Thus, he to whom the title of good doth not belong cannot be God most high, but by our Lord's words this title belongs not to him, but only to God the Father. Therefore, God the Father must be God alone. Answer, Christ may be supposed to speak to this young man thus, Thou givest me a title which was never given to the most renowned rabbis, and which agrees to God alone. Now thou oughtest to believe that there is something in me more than human, if thou conceivest that this title of good doth belong to me. Observe, too, that our Savior might convince him of the error of the Pharisees, who believed that they might, without the knowledge of him, the true Messiah, enter into life by keeping the law of God according to that lax and loose interpretation which they, the Pharisees, had given of it. He binds them, keep the commandments. Where note, Christ calls him off from outward ceremonies, which the Pharisees abounded in, to the practice of moral duties. Yet withal lets him understand that if he expected salvation by the moral law, he must keep it perfectly and exactly, without the least deficiency which is an impossibility to man in his lapsed state. Learn, one, that such as seek justification and salvation by the works of law only must keep the whole law, or covenant of works, perfectly and exactly. Learn, two, that the best way to prepare men for Jesus Christ is to let them see their own impotency to keep and fulfill the covenant of works. Verses 18 through 20. He saith unto him, Which, Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man said unto him, All these things I have kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Burkett notes, Observe here that the duties which our Savior instances in are the duties of the second table, which hypocrites are most failing in, for the sincere practice of our duty to our neighbor is a single evidence of our love to God. These duties of the second table, young man says, he had kept from his youth, and perhaps might say it truly, according to the Pharisees' interpretation, which condemned only the gross outward act, 
not the inward lust and motion of the heart. Learn hence how apt men are to think well of themselves and to have too high an opinion of their own goodness and righteousness before God. All these I have kept from my youth up. Verse 21. Jesus said unto him, If that will be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Burkett notes, That is, thou hast been all the days of a Pharisee. If now thou will be a Christian, thou must maintain a readiness and disposition of mind to part with all that thou hast in this world, at my call and at my command, and follow after me. Learn one that such as enter themselves disciples of Christ must be ready at Christ's call to part with all for Christ's sake that they have in this world. Two, that all that possess themselves to be Christ's disciples must be his followers. That is, they must obey his doctrine and imitate his example, his holiness, his humility, his heavenly mindedness, his patience, his meekness, his readiness to forgive injuries, and the same must be in us, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Burkett notes, This parting with all for Christ seems so hard a condition to the young man that he went away sorrowful from Christ. Whence learn, one, that a man wedded to the world will renounce Christ rather than the world when both stand in competition. Two, that unregenerate and carnal men are exceedingly sorrowful and sadly concerned that they cannot have heaven upon their own terms and win it in their own way. The young man went away sorrowful. Verse 23. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Burkett notes, Our blessed Savior takes occasion from what had passed to discourse with his disciples concerning the danger of riches and the difficulties that attend rich men in their way to salvation. A rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of God. Whence note, one, that rich men do certainly meet with more difficulties in their way to heaven than other men. It's difficult to withdraw their affections from riches, to place their supreme love upon God in the midst of their abundance. It's difficult to depend upon God in a rich condition. The poor hath committed himself to God, but the rich man's wealth is his strong tower. Two, that yet the fault lies not in the riches, but in rich men, who, by placing their trust and putting their confidence in riches, do render themselves incompatible of the kingdom of God. Verse 21. And again I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Burkett notes, These words were proverbial speech among the Jews to signify a thing of great difficulty next to an impossibility. And they import this much, that it is not only a very great difficulty, but an impossibility for such as abound in worldly wealth to be saved without an extraordinary grace and assistance from God. It's hard for a rich man to become happy, even by God, because he thinks himself happy without God. Verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Burkett notes. The disciples, understanding how naturally and strongly men love the world, and how idolatrously and inordinately their hearts run out upon it, they say unto Christ, Lord, who then can be saved? Learn one that when the general difficulties which lie in the way of salvation are laid forth and sufficiently understood, we may justly wonder that any are or shall be saved. 
too, that such as are the special and peculiar difficulties in the rich man's way to heaven, that his salvation is a matter of wonder and great admiration to the disciples of Christ. When the disciples heard this, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? Verse 26. But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Burkett notes, As if Christ had said, Were all men left to themselves, no man, either rich or poor, would be saved. But God can bring men to heaven by the mighty power of his grace. He can make the rich in a state poor in spirit, and them that are poor in this world rich in grace. Learn, one, that it's impossible for any man, rich or poor, by his own natural strength, to get to heaven. Two, that when we are discouraged with a sense of our own impotency, we should consider the power of God and act our faith upon it. With God, all things are possible. Verses 27 and 28. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Burkett notes, The apostles, having heard our Savior's command to the young man to sell and give to the poor, St. Peter, in the name of the rest, tells Christ that they had left all and followed him. Behold, we have left all, where note how Peter magnifies that little which he had left for Christ and ushers it in with a note of observation and admiration also. Behold, for we have forsaken all. What shall we have then? Learn thence that although it be a very little that we suffer for Christ and less that we have to forsake upon his account, yet we are apt to magnify and extol it as if it were some great matter. Lord, we have forsaken all. What all? His tattered fisher boat and his ragged nets? scarce worthy to be mentioned. Yet how it is magnified. Behold, Lord, we have left all, but observe our Lord's kind and gracious answer. He that have left all to follow me shall be no losers by me. For in the regeneration, that is, at the resurrection, when believers shall be perfectly renewed, both in soul and body, and shall enjoy my kingdom, then, as I sit upon the throne of my glory, so shall you sit with me in a higher degree of dignity and honor judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That is, the Jews first for their unbelief, and then all the other despisers of gospel grace and mercy. Learn, one, that such ministers as do most service for Christ and forsake most to follow him, shall in his kingdom partake of most honor and dignity with him and from him. Two, that as the ministers of Christ in general, so as twelve apostles, in particular, shall sit nearer the throne of Christ and have a higher place in glory at the great day than ordinary believers. Verse 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or fathers, or mothers, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive a hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. Burkett notes. The foregoing promise, verse 28, respected the apostles. This, all Christians who forsake their dearest enjoyments for Christ. He assures them they shall be recompensed in this life a hundredfold. How? Not in species, but in valor. Not in kind, but in equivalence. Not a hundred brethren or sisters or lands, but first he shall have that in God, which all creatures would not be to him if they were multiplied a hundred times. 
Secondly, the gifts and graces, the comforts and consolation of the Holy Spirit shall be a hundredfold better portion than anything we can part with for the sake of Christ and his gospel here. Though we may be losers for Christ, yet we shall never be losers by him. Christ gives present recompenses as well as future rewards, insomuch that they who have suffered and lost most for Christ have never complained of their suffering or losses. Therefore, never be afraid to lose anything for Christ. He will not only see you indemnified, but plentifully rewarded. In this world, a hundredfold. In that to come, eternal life. Verse 30. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Burkett notes, A twofold sense and interpretation is given of these words. The first respects the Jews and Gentiles in general. The second, all the professors of Christianity in particular. The Jews, as if Christ had said, look upon themselves as first and nearest to the kingdom of heaven, but for their infidelity they shall be last in it, that is, never shall come there. And the Gentiles, who are looked upon as dogs and furthest from heaven, shall be the first there, upon their conversation to me and faith in me. As the words respect all professors, the sense is, many that are first in their own esteem and in the opinion of others, and forward in a projection of religion, Yet at the day of judgment, they will be last and least in mine and my father's estimation and account. And many that were little in their own and less in the esteem of others who had a less name and vogue in the world shall yet be first and highest in my favor. Learn hence that the day of judgment will frustrate a great many persons' expectations, both as touching others and concerning themselves. Many will miss out of heaven and be last who looked upon themselves to be first and many will find others in heaven whom they least expected there. The Lord judges not as man judges. We judge of a man by outward appearances, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth. He can neither be deceived nor yet deceive. <laughs>